I would say the number one mistake, and short-term rental guys are notorious for this too, is not formalizing books and records before trying to file a tax return. And it's so easy now to have a cheap, effective accounting record system for your short-term rental that you're going to be missing deductions uh, if you don't go into some kind of system like that that categorizes all your transactions. I would say if you're running an actual business, treat it like an actual business and use a business credit card, a business bank account, and a formal accounting system. That way you'll know all of your deductions are captured in one place. The most common mistake is not having those deductions at all. Everybody wanna get the bag, but y'all really know what it's gonna take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue gems, gotta show you the way. Cause we talk finance and amortizing and anything it takes to get real estate. We've been grinding all day, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this web, cause we're dropping blue gems. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Another episode of Blue Gems Podcast with Mr. Billy Withers, a tax strategist specialist. Man, I am so excited to have you on. And for the listeners that haven't heard of you, how about you give a brief story and rundown about what you're up to? Definitely. So thank you for having me. I, as you said, I'm a tax strategist. I'm a tax accountant for over 10 years, helping real estate investors of all kinds. But I've had short-term rental investors for about half my career, helping them out with you know short-term rentals and all, all over the US. And I've had a, a interesting career, but like I said, always kept a hand with helping real estate investors. And I have worked at the real estate CPA for oh, over five years as well before going off on my own firm to try and uh, bring a, a personalized touch back to the accounting world. Amazing. Let's talk a bit about that transition. What uh, what inspired you to go off and do your own thing? Yeah. So I decided to go off on my own when I realized that's what I was looking for in the first place. Um, I, I transitioned out of the real estate CPA, thought I was going to an opportunity that suited me better, but realized while I was there that really what I was looking for is the freedom to do my own thing and march to the beat of my own drum and service the clients that I saw fit. And then also, I really have control over the which kind of clients I work with. So it's been working out so far. I'm, I'm five months into going off on my own here. And uh, it's been really rewarding to work with clients who are in the short-term rental space in addition to long-term rentals and things like that. But I'm having better, deeper conversations and connecting with people and, and taking care of them the way that I like to take care of them. So it's been really rewarding. What's been the biggest challenge becoming a business owner and self-employed? You know, the uncertainty. It's it's always been a little bit more predictable in the, the working world. But honestly, I, I reflect on it weekly, at least, that I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, you, you sacrifice a little bit of uncertainty to gain a lot more control in what you're doing and how you spend your day. And it's it's priceless, honestly. So, But it has been a little challenging not being able to forecast like I used to financially. For sure. Nice. So... Before you guys get down to like the nitty gritty, because, you know, Aiden has an accountant background. So you guys are going to have a phenomenal conversation. But before we even get down to that, for some of the, the listeners that are just starting out and, you know, maybe they have one or a few short term rental properties, why would it be advantageous to have, you know, a tax strategist? Like, what are some of the things that's going to be attractive to hire someone like you as an STR owner? It's going to be hard for me to whittle that, that down uh, because there's a lot of benefits even when you're just starting out. I would say the main focus when you're just starting out is usually you hear all of the content about how a short term rental can be very beneficial for 
from a tax standpoint. Um, but the problem with it, with that is if you accidentally find yourself in a situation where your short-term rental is doing very well, you may have kind of flipped your tax years where your first tax year, you got a big tax benefit. Then the next year, your rental property is doing so well that you now have a big tax bill that's due. And so the question is, and the question you might need help answering is, what do I do now that I have a tax bill in year two? So I've seen that time and time again with short-term rental investors. They get a really great deal and it really helps them out on the tax side in year one. But now in year two is because they did so well. They, they have a tax bill that they have to work on mitigating. And that's where I come in and help people strategize around that. I would also say, you know, a lot of people wonder, you know, do I need to be a real estate professional? The answer is it depends, things like that. So you, you need to work with a tax strategist to make sure you're absolutely going to reap the benefits and ensure that you're reaping the benefits rather than just kind of going off on your own and, and shooting from the hip. And then what made you pick short-term rentals or why were you interested in that specific niche when it comes to tax strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. So a, a client had come to us. He had a couple of rentals in the Poconos. He said how much work he and his partners were doing in that property. And and as we were looking through uh, his situation, we kind of realized, well, well, what he's doing here is non-passive in nature. And then realizing that in his specific situation, those non-passive losses from having short-term rentals were really giving him a big benefit. And, and as we looked out across the landscape, and we see that there's not a lot of benefits for high wage earners, and then couple that with the fact that Airbnb was just blossoming and, and becoming more and more part of our vernacular day to day, we realized that we had a big opportunity that we needed to dig into it and, and have some certainty around using short-term rentals as a tax strategy. And, and we just kind of kept working at it and realizing and proving out that uh, it is a solid strategy. And and so we started you know sharing with, with everyone we knew that it's a solid strategy. And then we would also help other clients who were seeing the same benefits as well. So it's been kind of a proven methodology and, and just... The, the nature of the beast is I think it was just kind of a perfect marriage of you know the right the right clients getting into it at the right time with Airbnb and then coming to the right people the tax strategists who kind of understood the laws and the loopholes to to get the job done for him yeah and I, I kind of want to harp on that a little bit right and kind of drive home that point you're a tax strategist that specializes in short-term rentals you've had a lot of experience in this regard you know it's very different than just hopping on Google and looking for a tax strategist or a tax accountant that doesn't necessarily have this short-term rental understanding to, to leverage those loopholes, right? So, you know, for the listeners, whenever you're looking for someone and you're in the STR space, try to find someone like Billy that specializes in this endeavor, in this field, in this market, right? Because not every single accountant is going to be equally invested in, in this arena, right? Same with like real estate agents. If you find a real estate agent, maybe it's the, the best one. They're selling a ton of properties in Orlando, for instance. They're not all going to specialize in understanding how to underwrite your deals for you or understand the regulations and how to apply for a permit. So Billy, man, you're dropping a ton of gems already. And I, I can't wait till people can uh, connect with you for sure. Thank you. And, and to, to that, I would add, you know, I, I think that we're trying to get a community together of people who kind of understand the short term rental aspect of taxation. And then, you know, I was I come across somebody on LinkedIn the other day, and he was talking about all these tax strategies that I know nothing about. And I, I was so thankful that he knows that about those things, because I know now where to send my clients if I'm, uh, you know, over my skis a little bit. So I think it's I think it's just like anything else The if you can niche down and find people in that niche, that you'll get the results that you're looking for. Exactly. I think a lot of people know that, you know, real estate is advantageous from a tax perspective, but can you talk a bit about 
differences between a long-term rental and a short-term rental from a tax perspective? Definitely. So a long-term rental from a tax perspective is generally limited. There are some exceptions if you don't make a lot of money where you can deduct some of your losses from real estate on long-term rentals. Um, and, and there's a lot of calculations that have to go into that. But in general, somebody who makes over $150,000 a year is going to be not see any immediate benefit from investing in long-term rentals unless they can somehow become a real estate professional. Whereas on the short-term rental side of things, if you rent your short-term rental for an average of seven days or less, because of the frequency by nature of that activity, the IRS says, well, this is a non-passive activity for you. So if you can create lots of losses from that short-term rental activity and meet those qualifications, then you can use those non-passive losses by investing to offset your other forms of non-passive income, namely usually your your W-2 day job or your wage earning job. And then what what is the definition of non-passive? Like what does the IRS say that you need to do to consider yourself active, you know, in in short-term rentals? Yeah. So short-term rental, uh, the the key catchphrase is material participation. There's seven tests to materially participate in your short-term rentals. And if you materially participate, then they're considered non-passive, just like like I said, those other streams of income. The the two most popular tests are whether you spend five hundred hours in your short-term rental activity or a hundred hours and more than anyone else. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. But if you kind of take away anything uh, from this talk today, you know, as, as long as you're meeting those two qualifications, you're probably good to go in terms of treating your short-term rentals as non-passive. And on top of, like I said, it has to, your, your tenants have to be there an average of seven days or less. So for example, if you have one tenant stay for three days and you have another tenant stay for 10 days, you know, 13 divided by two is six and a half. And so you're good to go because you're under seven. Yeah, I think there's a, a common avatar, right? Let's say, hypothetically speaking, I'm a W-2 earner and I hire a property manager to take over my short-term rental. Do I have any tax you know, benefits or how does that work? So if you don't materially participate because your property manager spends more time in it than you um, and you don't spend 500 hours, then that's going to go into the passive bucket for you. And that's still not the end of the world because you could also be investing in long-term rentals. And so those long-term rental uh, passive activities will net together with your short-term rental passive activity. And so you could be in a situation where your short-term rental generates passive income and your long-term rentals generate passive losses. And then when those offset, you're not paying any tax this year. So it's not all doom and gloom if you can't meet the non-passive requirements, but it's just really important to talk with somebody who really understands your situation and your goals um, from a strategy standpoint to ensure that you're getting the best outcome every year. And then can we talk a bit about the short-term term benefits of depreciation and what it means for a real estate investor. I think there's a lot of confusion in the real estate investing community where depreciation means that you don't pay tax at all. But what it really means from from our understanding is that you're just deferring the tax. So what are the implications long term for someone who you know uses depreciation to their advantage? First off, a dollar saved today is worth more than a dollar in the future, generally speaking with inflation, right? So it's usually a good idea to take the deduction today. That said, you still, like I said, have to work with a strategist who understands your your goals and your overall situation. So to answer your question, you know, depreciation today is just a deferring of tax. For example, if I write off $100,000 from an asset today and you don't 
get a preferential tax treatment on it. So when it comes to real estate, I have to recognize that $100,000 specifically in the future. If I buy a $500,000 property today and take a $100,000 deduction on it, if I turn around and sell it for $600,000, $100,000 of gain will be at capital gains rates, which are good. And $100,000 will be at ordinary or not as preferential rates, which is bad. It's not an immediate write-off today because you have to at some point catch it back up. But there are other strategies that we can use to avoid that tax. But now saying that, I have to also disclaim that where, you know, we're, we're getting into a situation where we used to be able to write off a lot more because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act the last four years. Well, that is now sunsetting and now into the future, we'll be able to write off even less as we go along. So uh, with those bonus depreciation rules. So it's just going to be crucial that you work with somebody who understands your situation and what you're trying to do, because it's going to be harder to shield you from those gains in the future using depreciation because depreciation, the the bonus depreciation specifically, is uh, going from 100% down to 80% this year and 60% in the future year. So it's, uh, like I said, you just got to work with somebody who knows what they're doing. Is there any other changes to the tax law moving into 2023 and 2024 that short-term rental investors should be aware of? So I, th- I think the that's pretty much the main one. You get um, a, a lot a lot of the buzzwords are cost segregation studies and things like that, where you're able to use a study to offset a lot of depreciation with bonus depreciation. But as bonus depreciation fades from 100 to 80 to 60, you know the the immediate impact of a cost segregation study is not going to be as great. Now that said, we can still use um, partial asset disposition, for example, where if you aren't able to write off things that you used to be able to write off like appliances or carpeting or flooring, things like that. If you're replacing those items, you'll be able to get a deduction for your old assets that you're throwing away. And so now you're getting a little bit of the benefit on those new assets that isn't at 100%, but you'll be able to get a little bit more of a deduction there. So it just becomes crucial to the, to really look at what you're depreciating and make sure you're not depreciating too much in terms of you know two roofs, two sets of appliances, two sets of carp, things like that. That's going to be one strategy to help you as the bonus depreciation phase out here. Could you elaborate a little bit on what a cost segregation study is just for the listeners that are just hearing uh, you know, this phrase for the first time? So a cost segregation study is where the engineers or maybe the engineers who own a software take a look at a property that you purchase and break it out into different components. The IRS says that different components have different class lives and those class lives dictate whether or not they qualify for bonus depreciation. If the IRS says you know, appliances and carpeting are eligible for five-year depreciation, you can deduct those in the first year, generally speaking, or 80% this year. Whereas the other components in your building, roofs, you know, walls, structural components, things like that, need to be depreciated over 27 and a half years for long-term rentals or 39 years for short-term rentals. So breaking out those components into different buckets allows you to get a better result from a depreciation standpoint. Because if you just depreciate a whole building over 39 years, it takes you a long time to recoup your investment. But if you can break the components into shorter class lives, even if you don't take bonus depreciation on it, you're still able to take those depreciation sooner, which as we just established, gives you that time value of money benefit today, as opposed to waiting for it to come to you in the future. Now, on the flip side of that, like we're talking about here, if you have to repay that depreciation later down the line, that's something to be aware of. But it still makes sense usually today to you know just at least break out those components with a cost segregation study. And the IRS says that the only way that you can do that is with an engineer because they're an independent third party. You're obviously biased. 
I'm biased because you're paying me to help you with your taxes. But the engineers are trained to go in and see what the components are worth. So the IRS says that that's okay for them to do. And that's how we got cost segregation studies. So I think all this information is great, right? There's going to be a lot of people who are just not interested in learning or doing any of this. So how can an investor build out a tax team? What are the first steps in making sure that they're tax efficient and and tax compliant? I think a lot of the good accounts out there, the first thing they do is they take a look at your tax return and tell you if there's anything that they would have done differently. And I think that you could still be dealing with an honest person if they say, you know, you're optimized, you're good to go. What that tells you is this person has integrity and they're not just trying to sell you a bag of goods. Now that said, there could be a lot of issues with your return and you should dig into those. But I think that you can also cross-reference that with just references from other people, people who have done their work. I also think that it's also good to ask your accountant how frequently they stay up with tax changes. You know, something we did throughout my career is is have, you know, a lot of learning around what we do specifically. For example, you know, some some practitioners will go out and, and take their continuing professional education in just any category to get the learning done because there's requirements you have to meet. But think you 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 know you have the right person when they take their time to learn more about your niche and and help you find things in their continuing professional education that they can apply to their clients. I think if somebody, you know, if somebody doesn't have an answer for you when you ask, you know, how do you stay on top of tax changes, that might not be the person to go with as well. And then as far as the rest of the team, I would say that your tax accountant is typically your quarterback for all your your whole financial team. So they're going to understand when to loop in financial advisors, uh, attorneys, things like that. And so they should have a pretty deep network of people that you can work with. If you ask them about building out a team, they should be able to help you with that as well. Is there any other players on the team that we would need aside from the attorney and the uh, accountant? Yeah, I think definitely having a financial advisor is helpful. Sometimes you'll get to a point where the, the last thing to do is invest in a retirement account. And that's usually not where an accountant is going to help you. They'll help you from a from a tax saving standpoint, but they usually don't help you actually open the account and things like that. And then a, a financial advisor will say, we're going to open your account and allocate your wealth this way. You know, uh, you should probably, in, for, for our listeners here, you should probably work with somebody who understands the real estate side of things, because not all of them do. But at a minimum, they should be helping you you know, if you're putting money into a retirement account, which at some point you're going to want to do once you've exhausted investing in real estate, and they'll help you allocate the funds over there. So that's definitely somebody crucial to have on your team. And then I would also add some some tax credit experts can help too. The the cost segregation study folks, if you have somebody who knows you know is going to get the job done, that helps you because there's sometimes situations where you realize you want to have a cost segregation study done quickly, and those guys tend to fill up if you don't have a good relationship established with them. So something like that could be a, a, a fourth person that add to that team as well. Where would a bookkeeper fit into the team? Would they be working directly with the accountant or would they be independent? That's, that's a good question. I was going to say like an operations type person and I could see it a, a bookkeeper kind of filling in under there as well. So the bookkeeper, if they're not with your you know tax accountant as well, then they're absolutely going to be crucial to um, either work directly with you or work with the tax accountant. I've seen it done both ways successfully, right? So if if you can get a good flow with your bookkeeper and you guys have a good understanding of what questions they need from you and a good process of getting that information quickly, I could see that going really well. I could also see it going really well where your accountant quarterbacks that relationship and then now they're only asking the relevant information from you. So that's just one less thing that you have to worry about, one less system you have to set up. So I would say it, it kind of depends on what works for you and how well you understand your financial situation. I would say if you need a lot of help navigating 
the the debits and credits side of things, you might want to outsource it to your accountant if that's a service they provide for you. And then what can an investor expect to pay on average for maybe tax consulting, preparation? How do the packages and pricing even work? Yeah, I would say I've seen it done so many different ways. At our firm, I like to have a close personal relationship with my clients. So we have specific packages to onboard clients and really get an understanding of where they are at and where they want to go. I offer you know a lot of education in that respect. And those packages start for me at $3,000, which I think is a fairly common benchmark. That said, I know other accountants just do on-demand calls, things like that at a set hourly rate, or and sometimes they have Calendly links, something like that. That's a good option too. If you're not sure what you want to commit to and you're not sure what you're missing, you just call on them when you need them. I could see that working really well too. But I would think that you might lose some of that consistency in, in who you're working with if if you don't have a set call to kind of lay out your goals and things like that. So that's what we try and do with our packages is kind of bring you on board, understand your goals, kind of give you the direction that you need starting out, and then kind of help you along the way um, as we go through your first cycle with us, which is, you know, through filing your first tax return. Because at that point, all of your strategies and everything like that will be rolled up and the results will be in and they just kind of formally get put on the form to be reported to the IRS. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. And now let, let's say that I decided to, you know, do a bunch of due diligence and I land in fr- front of your firm and I'm like, yeah, I like the prices. I like what you represent. What do you need from your clients? Um, like, how can I best prepare for you and make your life easiest? So I think it's always good to have as much information as possible. I tell my clients at all times, if you think I might want to look at it, go ahead and send it to me because I'm just going to do better work if, if I have it, even if you think it's not relevant. So with that in mind, I would say at a minimum, you're going to want to be sending your current year tax documents, your your two previous years tax returns, any LLC formation documents, any partnership agreement documents. Uh, lease agreements are sometimes helpful. Loan documents are usually helpful. Settlement statements are almost always helpful. Depreciation schedules, make sure that you're in your prior year tax returns. If you're not, you need to request those. Yeah, I would say that you probably don't need bank statements right away, but I have heard of situations where accountants don't ask for bank statements and mortgage statements. And now you don't know if your balance sheet's correct. So I would say have those handy if you're not going to send them right away because you got to know what your balances are to know how good your books are. So And then the price that, that you brought up and mentioned, does that include the preparation itself or is there a different pricing structure for you know having multiple entities or where do we draw the line You know, if I'm looking to hire a CPA? I'm going to say we separate the tax return fees. And the reason being is just you know we, we help a lot of different people. It's tough to say... You know, everybody's certain return is worth this certain amount. Every situation is different. And so, you know, one 1040, one personal tax return is not going to be necessarily the same as the next, which is why it's a separate fee. To add to that, I would say the, the tax return is a different process. It could be, you know, kind of separated out for, you know, different tax years. Again, if you're coming on board today with me and you need your 2022 tax return done, I need to kind of have a separate look at that and a separate process for bringing that on board compared to, you know, let's just start 
start your strategy today that we're going to implement in 2023. So we kind of have a rhythm, you know, it's of course set by the IRS and the fact that it's either a calendar year or a fiscal year with a certain due date attached to that, that kind of dictates itself to a separate fee and different, you know, things like that. But um, ultimately, I think the strategy, we, we kind of say, you know, this is what you need to go start with at a minimum, or this is the minimum amount that we need to do to work together because we're going to bring this much value. And the tax return is just kind of something that's the results of working together and and a requirement by the IRS, which is why it kind of carries a separate fee and a separate process. A common question that we see in our Facebook group is, you know, they're looking for a CPA or a tax accountant that specializes in a certain state. Do you guys, you know, represent, you know, customers in all 50 states or how does that work? Definitely. Um, I would say that if you are trying to portray yourself as a real estate focused tax accountant, but you don't understand the implications of filing in all 50 states, I would have a hard time believing that you're actually real estate niched. And the reason is, is because a lot of people invest out of state, um, certainly now in the advent of the internet. I have worked at a firm before where, you know, a client was mostly in one geographical area. Area, even though they were real estate niched, but these guys were smart enough to understand all the tax implications of different states. So yeah, I, I work in all 50 states. I've had a lot of exposure there. And you know, like I said, the crux of the issue is if you have a rental in Ohio, you need to understand the taxing implications of Ohio, even if you live in Florida and don't pay any state income tax, because just because you live in Florida doesn't mean that you don't have to pay income tax at the state and local level. And then Ohio is like a whole nother situation because they have local filings and things like that. So you really got to understand, you know, what you're getting into before you invest out of state and then work with somebody who understands it as well. So generally, these questions are short term rental focused, but because you are the tax expert, I'm going to re-engineer. And so what do you think is the number one mistake that real estate investors make when it comes to taxes and tax preparation? I would say the number one mistake that, and and short-term rental guys are notorious for this too, is not formalizing books and records before trying to file a tax return. (laughs) Um, You know, it's with, I'm going to plug stessa.com. I don't get anything for plugging them. I just have had so many clients tell me that they love working with stessa.com, which is really weird to hear about an accounting software, but they just love working with stessa.com. And it's so easy now to have a cheap, effective, accounting record system for your short-term rental that you're going to be missing deductions uh, if you don't go into some kind of system like that that categorizes all your transactions. And obviously, kind of piggybacking on that is you know trying to commingle personal and business deductions so that you don't know which is which. Honestly, I'm guilty of it too. And, and, and But it's a little bit easier for me because I'm a service business. But that said, I would say if you're running an actual business, treat it like an actual business and use a business credit card, a business bank account, and a Formal accounting system. That way, you'll know all of your deductions are captured in one place. Because you know the, the most common mistake is not having those deductions at all. And then you have an interesting perspective, right? Because you get to see tax returns from different investors, and you can understand who's having financial success. So, of your most successful inve- investors, what's the number one trend that you're seeing? Ooh, I love this question. Yeah, I would say the most successful do do their due diligence. I think if they are... I've, I've had clients... I'm going to turn that on its head a little bit because I've had clients where they don't understand why they're not making money. And I think it's because it's a lack of planning and that they're surprised that they're not making money because they didn't plan at all. Whereas the successful people, it seems like they have a plan, they execute, and it ends up going a little bit better than they expected. And I would rather be on that end of things than the not having 
having a plan and, and diving in and wondering what's going on. And then if you could leave one last gem, it could be about the new tax code, it could be about cost segregations, it could be about life in general. What would you want to leave the listeners? I'm going to leave two gems because they kind of go hand in hand. So first of all, if you're considering a cost segregation study and you're on the fence, I would say go ahead and pull the trigger, even if you decide to do a software study as opposed to a um, engineered study, because what that allows for you to do is it gives you more flexibility, which is just so key in tax strategy. You want to have the flexibility to have the facts on your side. So if you're not sure whether you need bonus depreciation, things like that, it doesn't matter. Cost segregation study is still going to help you because it'll help you break those components into different buckets that might give you a bigger benefit on and in, in the eyes of the IRS. And then on top of that, if you go do any improvements to your property, you're going to want to know what those components are worth because if you, if you can't take more bonus depreciation on them, you might be able to write them off in future years when you go to replace them, but you need the cost segregation study to know what those values are. So like I said, if, if you're on the fence about getting one, if you're not sure if it's going to benefit you, nine times out of 10 it is. And so I would uh, you know work with your tax strategist to ensure that it's a good fit for you, but it probably is going to be. So that's that's what I'll leave you guys with. And then where can people find you? Yeah. So the best way to contact me is my website, summitats.com, or you can email us hello at summitats.com. And I'm frequently posting on LinkedIn. That's Billy Withers Tax on LinkedIn. Amazing. Let's go. Awesome episode, man. Really appreciate you. Yeah, of course. That was fun. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio, in networking with like-minded individuals, we host a short-term rental meetup once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.